The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Father God, how desperately we need to be encouraged by your sovereignty. You're not small. You're dangerously big. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight that we might have hope, that we might have persevering trust. Suffering is searing. Pain is real. And we need a great Savior. Meet us in this time now, I pray. Amen. Be seated. Yesterday, some of my family's dearest friends woke up into morning mercy and yet having no idea how much they would need. By noon, their one-year-old was in ICU, having lost breath and multiple seizures. And today, that little baby is at Children's in St. Paul struggling for life. What a comfort it is for us to know that we have a God who knows, a God who cares, a God who's in charge, and with whom nothing is caught off guard. He promises to shepherd us even through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us to green pastures. God, if you're the shepherd, why are you leading us through the valleys as well? So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Ecclesiastes 11.9. How dark this cursed world can be. How beyond our understanding. In one way or another, all of us in this room have tasted and will taste increasingly the curse's bite. For me, it's come in so many different venues, losing a brother, losing a child, believing that I had a son in Ethiopia who was coming home to me and fighting for him for a year and a half only to have the door shut. Marriage struggles a sister who's a practicing lesbian, all the tensions that it's caused in my family just to have unsaved siblings, having been abandoned when I was a child and only have met my biological father last year for the first time. There's small pains like broken iPhones and stubbed toes, and then there's big pains like divorce, orphans, sexual abuse, oppression and slavery, obstinate children, sick children, fear of lack, grief of loss, death of loved ones. This is our world. When honest, everyone in all the world 
has to admit that mental and physical, relational and emotional suffering is real. And because of that, a theological problem is created. Stated simply, the problem of pain is this. If there is a God worth trusting and following, then he must be all good and he must be all powerful. But if he is all good, why would he allow the evil of suffering to exist? And if he is all powerful, why doesn't he stop it? The problem of pain. Stated simply, why does an all good, all wise, all powerful God let pain persist. My message today comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes, so I encourage you to turn there. It's broken into two parts. One, the problem of pain, my pain, your pain, the problem of pain and the providence of God, and then considering why pain exists. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Now this book has been called the strangest in all our Bible. I'm going to offer an interpretation today that not all evangelicals would agree with, but I hope I can show it to you from the text. The message of pain in this book is prevalent, and the answer to pain in this book is remarkably hopeful. And for my wife and my children, the message of the great shepherd that is portrayed in this book has been massively comforting for us through our seasons of challenge. So, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. Look with me there. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider our God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Pain and the work of God. In this passage, it just brings the two together as if they cannot be separated. In verse 13, it's a God who makes things crooked. In verse 14, it's this same God who makes the day of adversity, literally, literally the evil day. He makes it. And he does so in a way that leaves you and I out of control. Not knowing what will come next. Do you see that? It says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's in control. We're out of control. And the text calls us to consider this. Consider the work of God. There is something that we are to gain by pondering the relationship between our pain and God's bigness. We're supposed to gain something from it. That an awareness of who God is is supposed to move us somewhere. And I pray that as we meditate on the bigness of our God today, that it would move us where we're supposed to be moved. As you do not know the way of the Spirit how the way of the Spirit, uh, sorry, and you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so it is that you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Ecclesiastes eleven fifteen. God is the maker of everything. In chapter 12, verse 1, he's called the creator. 
The great moment-by-moment mover. His speaking is what keeps us living moment-by-moment. Hebrews chapter chapter 1, verse 3. In the days of goodness, look at our verse, it says, in the prosperity day, be joyful. That is, in the day of goodness, be in the good. Be all there. But in the day of challenge, in the day of bad, we are to reflect. We're to allow our lack of control, our inability inability to understand, to move us, to remember that God is still in charge. The preacher calls us to see the work of God, or in the ESV, to consider. And in doing so, he's actually calling us to follow him on a journey that he's been laying out for us in the entire book. Over and over again, he is seeing things, and I want us to look at some of those things that he has seen about the work of God. And he's arriving at conclusions that he hopes we will move and move uh, and to the same spot that he has come to understand God the way he has understood him. All of us are experiencing all kinds of things. We're seeing everything, and yet not all of us are able to see what's really there. The preacher is more like Sherlock Holmes than Dr. Watson. He sees and he sees. May God give us an ability to see. So look with me back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 13 is where we will begin this little journey. It's just three passages that I'm going to touch on, although seeing shows up 43 times in this book. Chapter 1, verse 13, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, says the preacher. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen, there it is, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Chapter 8, 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man is toiled, man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man says that he's found it, he hasn't found it. He cannot find it. In all these passages, there's this ring of man's ignorance. God is working all things in a way that leaves us unclear. Unclear as to the full range of his purposes and uncertain about what will come next. Now back in chapter 7, 14. God is working, it says at the end of 14, so that man may not find out. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Romans eleven thirty three. The depths of God's purposes are unfathomable. It's not that we can't know anything about what he's doing. It's just that we can't know everything about what he's doing. This is partially what I think it means in 7.13 when it says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? As hard as I try, I can't put it in order. I can't align it. It's crooked and it's fixed that way. That's how God has moved his world. But, but I think there's another thing that it means when he says, what is straight, we can't make, uh, what, who can make straight what he has made crooked? That other thing is that it just talks about the fixed nature of God's providence. It's not random. It's purposed. It's structured but he alone understands it. So we read, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. Ecclesiastes 3.14. Or whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. Ecclesiastes 6.10. What is crooked, we can't make straight. And the one who has made it crooked, it is our God. God has ordained an unalterably vexing world. Vexing because we suffer in it and vexing because we are simply weak and inept. According to the preacher, the pains of this life grow out of a number of things. It's growing, the pain is growing out of the soil of the sheer monotony of life's repetitions, the fleeting nature of wisdom, skill, and wealth, the fact that one's life is simply forgotten after death, the realities of ignorance and injustice and oppression, envy, discontentment, financial loss, persistent battle with sin, unexpected trial. All of these are the context wherein our pain in this world grows. This is real life for us. God's curse has generated a world where rebel and remnant alike experience birth and death, laughing and weeping, peace and war. There is a time for all these things under the sun. And as the preacher considers how such things can be, as he considers them, he uses terms like an unhappy business, vexation and sorrow, great and grievous evil, and darkness. But I don't think the preacher is a pessimist. I think he is simply a realist. A realist who is looking at the same world you and I are with eyes that see that the curse is painful. And as I hope to show, I think he's not only a realist, but a God-honoring sage. Your world, my world, is being described by the preacher. But he's not only a realist and not a pessimist, he's also not an atheistic naturalist. Why? Because he believes that there is a God. That is, things are not random. He is clear that things are painful which means that he's applying value to things. They're not meaningless. No, that's not what he's declaring. 
No, they are deep meaning, and because of that, I feel pain when things are out of order. And it's also not futile. or vain, as if pointless or purposeless, because as I'm going to show you, there is explicit, clear purpose to all that God is doing. And I want to know what it is, because my world can be so broken. He's not a pessimist. He's not an atheistic naturalist, and he's not a dualist. Meaning that in his mind, this is not the truth, that there is an eternal battle between two equal forces whose nature as dark or as light is only a matter of one's perspective. Well, it might be bad to you, but it's not bad to me. That's not the preacher's world. He's able to declare things, this is right and this is wrong. That can't be dualism. The preacher recognized what we must affirm, that if there is real pain, that is, if pain is a real universal problem, then truth is not relative but absolute. That health and sickness are not just two realities, but that one is better than the other. That the presence of good and evil, right and wrong, pleasing and painful, demands a standard outside of ourselves. And that there must be a God who sets all measures of value. The problem of pain does not cancel out the possibility of an all-good, all-powerful God. Rather, I believe the very fact that it's a problem demands that God exists. To take the step of calling some things in this life universally sweet and other things universally sour, the preacher is declaring that there is a standard outside of this world upon which to measure reality. The very problem of pain necessitates the existence of God as the overarching sovereign of all things. So we ask, preacher, where does pain come from? He's absolutely clear. Look with me again at 7.13. Consider the work of God, which includes everything, both the days of prosperity and the days of adversity. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things, Isaiah 45, 7. Yet he does them in a way that he himself is not tainted by any wicked thing. We're not denying the presence of intermediaries. We're simply declaring that Satan is not in charge. He's like a dog on a leash. There's a level of mystery here that, at least for me, humbles me. I'm trying to put all this together. It humbles me. It moves me to deeper levels of dependence as we consider the bigness of the God of the Bible. Yet having considered, as the psalmist call, as the writer calls us, consider. Having considered and having been humbled, now, all of a sudden, if you're there, you find yourself in a place where now you're ready to be helped. And God wants to get people there. 
So I challenge you as we move on, don't perceive or portray the God of the Bible as small. He is dangerously large in charge of all things. He holds your future in his hand. Every blister, every breath, every battle being guided by his absolute sovereignty. We are radically dependent on an amazingly big God. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32, 39. We have to maintain that we have this big of a God. Why is that so important? A God who controls all things because if he is the decisive source of everything, including suffering, then that means too that he will be the decisive source of our satisfaction and our salvation. We need a God that's that big. We need a God that didn't get caught off guard when the pain entered our life because who are you and I to think that he won't get caught off guard then when he's trying to help us? He's not small. And the preacher will not let us believe in a small God. All things from him, through him, and to him. By him all things exist in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities created through him and for him. The very things that in the Colossians 2, Jesus triumphs over at the cross. The very things that we wrestle against, not flesh and blood, but against those things, the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this age. Those are the things that were created by God, for God. And we need it to be so. Consider the work of God. We have a shepherd who will lead us through the very valleys he created for our good. Part two. Why does pain exist? That's, that would be my question. I'm looking at the text and I'm saying, consider the work of God. He makes prosperity and adversity, one as well as the other, with the result that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And I say, why? Why would God be ordering his universe with such purpose? Why would he do it this way? Do we have any answers? Well, at the end of verse 14, it says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That sounds a lot like James. So you come and say to me, tomorrow I'll go do this or that. And James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. My friends woke up yesterday morning and they had no clue what they were going to face. But God did. He never sleeps, never slumbers, and he was preparing morning mercy to meet their daily need. Considering God's absolute sovereignty leaves us humbled, leaves us with a deep sense of dependence. Not only is our future utterly in his hands, but we are left unaware of countless thousands of purposes for every key event. 
So we read, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done unto the Son. However much he toils in seeking, he will not find it out. Chapter 8, 17. Or God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity into man's hearts, a capacity to know our God, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's how God's worked things. Life is such a mystery or an enigma, which is how I actually think, how I translate the key theme word that the ESV renders, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And I don't think his point is that everything is pointless. NIV, meaningless of meaningless, everything's meaningless. I don't think that's it. No, there's lots of meaning in his world. Everything is an enigma. This is a world that I can't get my hands around, and this is exactly how God intends it to be. In suffering, we ask, why me, God? Why her? Why this hard? Why this long? And like Job, we don't get any answer. Instead, we just get increased vexation. No clarity. And God's intentionally made it this way. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 14. It's the clearest spot that I see in the book where he just lays out why he does it the way that he does it. Chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. It's fixed. It's set. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Why does God do things the way that he does? He's done it so that people will fear him. God makes this world with a mixture of pleasure and pain so that people will fear before him. Fear. Fear of God is is such a pervasive theme in this entire book. Where enigmas persist, fear is necessary. Chapter 5, verse 17. It's the fear of God that keeps us going in the straight way, not falling off this side into religious pride and not falling off this side into deep wickedness. Chapter 7, 16 through 18. Then the narrator climaxes the whole book at the very end of the book in chapter 12. This is what he says, summing up the preacher's message in verse 13. He sums up everything that we were supposed to have gained. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What am I supposed to do in the midst of a world that I can't understand, where I don't know what to do when I get up to that hospital bed? What do I say, God? I don't know. Fear me. Fear me and keep my commandments. What do I call them to do in the midst of their struggle? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And why do we do it? Because God, verse 14, will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We fear God today because tomorrow is coming. And the fear of God today will keep us from having to fear tomorrow. Fearing God, what, is, what are we getting at here? It means to have a proper disposition toward God's character, toward his bigness toward his worth, to to have a right disposition toward it as a human. We're not fearing God when our ignorance of this life in the midst of struggles leads us to hatred of God and rebellion against God. 
Rather, we're fearing God when an awareness of our utter hopelessness apart from Him moves us to surrender to His purposes. Even when we don't understand them. Fear of God declares, I will follow. I will follow, come what may, even through the trial, through the tears, through the ache and the loss and the abuse and the lack and the want and the need. I will follow. That's the fear of God. Fear of God is a conscious, mental, conscious awareness that He alone can fill our emptiness, that He alone can satisfy, supply, and save. All because He is sovereign over everything, and I am not. The fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God, Paul said, was one of the biggest problems in the world. They don't fear God, Romans 3.18. We are to be a people who, is working, who are working every day our salvation out with fear and trembling for it is the absolutely sovereign God who holds my every bit of tomorrow, who holds my persevering, my saying no to sin. He holds it. I fear God today, working out my salvation because that God is working in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What God, God does what He does, intentionally placing us in troubling context so that, it says, we will fear Him. Fearing Him, taking our eyes off of self, taking our eyes off of others, and turning them to Him. To say it a different way, God will be most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Our dependence magnifies His worth. It puts all of us into a context of receiving help. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So, with Paul, with the preacher, could we move, see our hearts move to the point where we boast in our weakness so that the power of Christ, our Savior, Sovereign, and Satisfier may rest upon us? Why is fearing so important? That's a good question. So God is doing all that he is doing, even putting us in troubling circumstances so that we would fear him. Well, why? Why does he want us to fear him so much? Listen to the love of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12. Turn with me there. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. It's only those who fear God who will follow God, and it's only those who follow God who will enjoy eternal life. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, everything when we look at that sinner looks like everything's going well for him and it's going well for him for a very long time. Though a sinner may do evil a hundred times and prolong his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Hear that. That's the hope that grows out of the soil of suffering. It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow because He does not fear God. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of Him who has it. 
Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12. Fearing God today enables us to not have to fear judgment tomorrow. And God is working a world, a broken world, in such a way to create fears of Him because He's concerned about our future. Can you see the kindness of God in our suffering? He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to humble people. William Cooper put it this way, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. William Cooper. Turn with me back to chapter 7, 13. Conclusion. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. How are we to understand this God? Yahweh, his name, shows up nowhere in the book. Instead, what we get over and over again is God, 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 Elohim, except in two places. How are we to think of this God who is doing everything Number one, in chapter 12, verse 1, he's called the creator. The one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. But the last thing he's called in the book is a shepherd. Turn with me there, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 11. Let's ponder this. That the one who is working all things wisely is a shepherd, and the author wants us to know him that way. The words of the wise, chapter 12, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. So wise words, like those that are found in this book, are like goads that a shepherd is using to guide his sheep to green pastures, to guide them through the valley of the shadow of death. They're also like nails that help one be firmly fixed so that when the storms rise, you're not blowing all over. That's what wisdom does. And such wisdom comes from one shepherd. Look at the text again. 
Verse 11, note the capitalization of shepherd. Note also the echo of the Shema. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Some scholars have questioned why would God be called shepherd? This seems so out of place, they say in this book. And I say, what? If there's anything, a person who's been in pain, who's living in this real world, perplexed and troubled needs, he needs, she needs to know that there is one shepherd who hasn't lost his way. A shepherd who is the great provider, the great protector, who's in charge and who's worth following. But the beauty of this shepherd imagery is not just bound to this one word. The root standing behind that that title, shepherd, shows up nine other times in the book. It doesn't refer to the Lord, though. Nine other times in two different forms, and in every time the ESV translates it the same way. And I want us to consider the significance of climaxing the book with shepherd and using that same root to shepherd a number of other times. Just go back with me. We're just going to look at two texts and we'll wrap this up. Go back with me to chapter 114. Both examples are in chapter 1. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see the connection with our passage in 7.13. That phrase, do you see it? A striving after wind. That is the, that word for striving is translating a Hebrew word that is related directly to the noun shepherd at the end of the book. A striving after wind, it could be translated a shepherding of wind. When it comes to you and I trying to get our hands around this crooked world, I think what the preacher is saying, it's like shepherding wind. How would you do? This world is like a shepherding of wind. I'm I'm trying to get my hands around it and I can't get my hands around it. Look at verse 17 now. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases sorrow, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more wisdom that the preacher gained, the more vexing he became. He just would get more frustrated because he couldn't put it all together. It's like shepherding wind. So how are we to respond? This is the reality of the problem of pain. Our incapacity, hear this, Our incapacity to shepherd or control reality, that's here, should move us to consider the works of God and be humbled. And as we are humbled, it moves us 
into a righteous fear in the good shepherd who has been controlling all things from beginning to end. When we can't shepherd, we remember we have a shepherd. When it seems out of control, we put our trust in the one who is in control. And that's the message of the book. God is our shepherd, the provider and the protector of all who fear him. And we can rest confident that even in our unknowns, he's working for his glory and for our good. It's intriguing that in John chapter 10, Jesus builds on this one shepherd imagery. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. John 10, 16. Then just a few verses later, my sheep, are you among them? Hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because they're in my hand and they're in my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. One. So if you're suffering, know that you're not forgotten. We have a shepherd who cares deeply for his sheep and who will not let you go. The problem of suffering is answered by the presence of our saving shepherd. The problem of suffering is answered by the presence of our saving shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we admit as we consider your bigness that we are small, but we take hope in the fact that you are big, that what seems out of control to us, is in control to you. We can't understand it all. We don't have answers for everything, but we rest. And in resting today, fearing you today, we take courage that we don't have to fear tomorrow. Thank you for working for us in our saving shepherd, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.